Hello, you're listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in the intellectual discipleship of the church and civilization. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal Pietas, or to sign up for our newsletter and make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceronianSociety.org. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society, and before introducing our guest, please join me in a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. We're recording this on June 1st, 2023, and I am thrilled to be joined today by my friend James Matthew Wilson. James is the Cullen Foundation Chair in English Literature and the founding director of the Master of Fine Arts program in Creative Writing at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, which we will discuss today. He is a poet and critic of contemporary poets of contemporary poetry, whose work appears regularly in such magazines and journals as First Things, The Wall Street Journal, Hudson Review, Modern Age, where he is poetry editor, The New Criterion, Dappled Things, that's a new one for me, uh, Measure, The Weekly Standard, Front Porch Republic, Raintown Review, National Review, and The American Conservative. The author of 11 books, his most recent collection of poems, The Strangeness of the Good, published in 2020, won the Poetry Book of the Year Award from the Catholic Media Awards. He has received many other awards in the past and serves as poet-in-residence of the Benedict XVI Institute. He is the series editor of Coliseum Books, and he serves on the boards of several learned journals and societies. And his next book, Catholic Modernism and the Irish Avant-Garde, will be published in 2023. Like me, he is a native Michigander, and I'm thrilled he's here. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for having me. All right. <clears throat> well, I want to get started uh, with with a qu- we're, we're, like we're going to talk about the MFA program, but I want to talk more about poetry in general and about your work uh, first. And I want to start with a question my six-year-old daughter asked me in the car the other day. Uh, I don't recall what the provocation was, but she says, Daddy and Mommy and Daddy, uh, what is poetry? And I, I was, I, I mean, we, we were a little flummoxed. We, 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 we had an answer, but I, I'm not a poet, and my wife is not a poet. Um, and so I was wondering, how do you respond to that? I'm kind of wondering what the non-poet's answer is myself, but um, <laughs> if you can share that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, well, well I, yeah, I'll, I'll give it after you give yours, and we'll we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, so we'll, we'll, we'll compare. That's, I I feel kind of cursed getting this question first because just moments ago I was looking at something something in um, the poet uh, A.M. Juster just wrote, I'm sick of hearing poets talk about what poetry is, just write poems. Um, <laughs> Perfect. So now I feel chastised in offering any kind of answer here, but uh, evidently I've squandered much of my life because I published a book called The Fortunes of Poetry in an Age of Unmaking that was be- began as a, uh, its opening chapters are a critique of the way in which poetry has fallen into decline in uh, modern English poetry has fallen into steep decline in the last 50, really 70 years. Um, and also a defense, though, of the poets who are still doing good work in our day, of which there are many. Um, but the criticism, the, the kind of critique that I leveled over the course of much of that book, naturally raised the question, well, if all of this stuff is so bad, what's, 
what does it look like when poetry is good? And it, so the book culminates in a final chapter called um, The Part the Muses Give Us, which is a, an attempt to offer a, a definition of poetry that's rooted in the actual practice of poetry historically. Um, and that is one that is, you might say, teleologically oriented rather than uh, materially oriented. And here, okay. Here's what I mean by that. Um, in the mid-20th century, there was a great poet named J.V. Cunningham. He wrote mostly short poems, chiefly epigrams. Um, and uh, in his literary, literary criticism, he offered the definition of poetry that works roughly like this. He says something like this. I mean by poetry what people mean by poetry when they go to a bookstore to buy a book of poetry for a graduation present or something like that. That is to say, I mean composition in meter. And I think composition in meter is an excellent definition of poetry, but it, uh, but it also misses something. Why does it miss something? Well, it's a material definition. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's describing a material property, or, or what could be called a material property, um, the, the metrical content of the poem. And it's, def just, or, and it's just defining poetry purely in those terms. But I'm a, I'm a uh, dogged Aristotelian, and so I know that there are four causes to everything, and that you don't really understand the essence of something if you're not thinking in terms of the final cause. So you have to look at what poetry does, what it's for, in order to arrive at a definition of what it is, essentially. And J.V. Cunningham won't be too upset by that because uh, meter's still going to be present there. It just doesn't exhaust the definition of poetry. So uh, when I looked at what poetry has done and what, it, what purpose it's served, I, uh, I've noticed that, of course, it served multiple purposes over the course of its history, but, um, uh, but I can probably boil it down to two just for uh, time's sake. And that is, when we look at the uh, ancient world, and I don't just mean ancient Greece, although I'm thinking of that primarily, but actually uh, every civilization on the planet, we see that every civilization, without exception, has poetry as an art form. It's the only truly universal art. And that in all of those civilizations, one of the functions of poetry is the telling of stories. And we might say, okay, so poetry is just storytelling, not... Um, it has nothing to do with meter. That's not quite true. Um, the purpose of telling stories in poetry is deeply rooted in the idea of memory, the stories that should be remembered and the form that makes them memorable. And meter is in several ways mnemonic. It's mnemonic because it's it adds beauty even to very plain statements, but also it's beautiful in the sense, or it's also mnemonic in the sense that when you have this or that meter, depending on the particular language, uh, the, the formal properties of meter make it easier to retain the story and to, and to retell the story just as you've heard it. Um, this is something that uh, is with us now, but uh, is famously with us, not just in the ancient world, but up through the early modern uh, period. As most people know, a lot of the first copies of Shakespeare's plays were pirated copies where uh, people were paid by a publisher to go and hear the play and then to come back to, to the printer's office and report what they had heard. And because of um, 
the iambic, iambic pentameter that uh, makes up a plurality of the lines of Shakespeare's plays, those lines were easy to remember and report back. Now, of course, those early copies are also full of errors, but, you know, they did pretty well going, hearing the play for three hours and then walking back to the printer shop and reporting as much as they could. Um, so that's, that's the, the sort of ancient testimony of the purpose of poetry, to tell stories in a memorable way, to cultivate the memory. In the modern age, um, most people, when they hear the word poetry, they're thinking of lyric poetry rather than narrative poetry, even if they've grown up reading uh, Homer and Virgil, as, as every good person should. Um, <laughs> and this also has something to do with the memory, but it's the memory as St. Augustine conceived it. The memory as the great locus of the self, the sort of aspect of the self that uh, in its uh, endurance, in its preservation of fleeting time within the soul, uh, memory is, the, is one of the three aspects of the human person that, that are images of the Trinitarian God. Memory, understanding, mm -hmm. and will, says Augustine. Right. And the idea of memory as a place of interior exploration where you might rehearse the episodes of your life, but not just that, uh, a place of interior exploration where the whole contents of everything you know and that constitutes you as a knowing person is permanently located as if it were in a giant storehouse, that concept of memory led to the development of the modern lyric poem as a source of interior reflection. Their lyric poetry is as old as poetry, Mm -hmm. But um, in the modern age, beginning um, uh, with, with Dante and his contemporaries, I mean, that's going back pretty far to late medieval age, I should say, but, uh, but developing out of the late medieval poets and into the Renaissance and then beyond, poetry came to be associated with this interior exploration of memory by way of which, or in which, um, verse form, metrical form, also played a crucial part. Because verse uh, form, the use of meter and rhyme, was a way of giving structure and uh, permanent form to the otherwise highly fluid and, and evanescent and evasive um, uh, experiences of, of dwelling and entering into memory, into the unrepresentable interior states of the self. So we find here that memory and meter play a crucial role role in poetry, and only one part is really missing. And that is, if we look at Homer, uh, one aspect of, of Homer's poetry that, that every school child will, will know are the great Homeric similes, the use of figures of speech, of analogies or tropes in order to make the fleeting things of human experience more vivid, more permanent through their association with other things. We see something similar in the modern lyric poem, where the use of metaphor becomes absolutely essential because what's often being described is something that's not subject to sense knowledge or sense experience. Um, what does it mean to be in love? Well, it's like a freezing fire, if, uh, you know, say many of the Petrarchan poets, a freezing fire. That's, that's a Brilliant. metaphor <laughs> that, that makes sensu sensuously visible what is in fact this interior, unrepresentable, otherwise unrepresentable experience of ambivalence or of, of feeling pulled in two different directions at once. So if we take all this together, 
we get a definition of poetry that very conveniently is alliterative. It has three M's to it. Poetry is that art form that is constituted by memory, metaphor, and meter. And we can actually add one more M to it. And what is that? Poetry is a kind of making. In the ancient Greek word, the ancient Greek uh, word for poetry is poiesis, and poiesis just means in general any act of making. But um, but Plato writes in the Symposium that poetry is that kind of making, that or the art of poetry, the art of verse making, is the kind of making that gets the prize term poiesis. It gets to reserve it to itself, even though every kind of making could be constituted as poiesis. And the reason it gets it is because it's the part the muses give us. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, it's a kind of making, so we do it, but we do it with the assistance or the inspiration of the muses. And so it's a kind of human making where in the act of crafting something, of doing our best to master the skills of, of composing or chiseling verses, we nonetheless are continuously conscious of that effect of inspiration or something beyond ourselves making possible this act of making so it's so we're both receptive and active at the same time so if you take making memory metaphor and meter all four m's together you've got a complete understanding of what poetry is brilliant so now i don't have to buy the book now um just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. Please i, do. I I'm, I'm, well, please do please um i i'm uh, I'm, I'm chuckling over here because the, the, remember this question started off with how do we respond to a six-year-old? So the answer you just gave reminds me of if anybody out there has seen is watch Peppa Pig, like when Daddy Pig gives a really long answer to Peppa on some simple question, and and mm-hmm. she says so it's magic, <laughs> and then he just gives up and says yes it's magic. Um, but it's this another is just, M. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, there, the, it that it, was such a uh, Interesting answer. There's a lot of things I noticed there in the sense that, first of all, you defined it in many ways. You you, you went through the history and it, the the importance of knowing that history to understanding what poetry is. Um, I think is 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 crucial. It's also interesting how we connect um, how necessary poetry has been for, for lack of a better word, um, world building. So in in the sense that the way you the way you describe poetry to me helps me make sense of. Why Tolkien, for example, has to have poetry in Middle Earth? There's another M, uh, but it's that the sense that he, in order to create his world, the poetry was not just some thing to skip over, right? It's not just a uh, uh, just well, it's it's a, a, a digression in the story. It's part of his world building because it's not it's not just decoration, right? Um, and and the way the way also another thing. You, the way you describe poetry um, in this broader sense, uh, the kind of the, the joking thing that I might say if like if someone gives me a delicious cinnamon roll, um, I'm not sure why that came to mind. I guess because it's, it's the morning, and I say, yes, this is delicious. It's like poetry, um, <laughs> which is a ridiculous thing to say. But at the same time, there also is uh, like you, there is there there's a um, the, the the muses speak to architects and chefs. And um, musicians, and and all these different um, creative uh, arts. I also was thinking too of um, something that just slipped my mind. That uh, was a brilliant thought. It's gone now. You'll never know. Um, but I'll I'll move, I'll move on from there. So we, we talked about what poetry is, um, and this is you know again amazing. Um, 
I want to move on to a little bit about you. I, you know, uh, people are interested in this MFA program that we will talk about in a moment. I'm just curious, when did you understand yourself to be James Matthew Wilson, the poet? Like, wh- wh- where did this come from? Um, you know, I, I feel like biography is really important in the life of, of many of our greatest poets, at least to the extent that we know it, Shakespeare and Homer, we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when, when did James Matthew Wilson say, you know what I am? I'm a poet. Uh, well, I, I generally don't say that, but, <laughs> but if I, if I <laughs> well, or, or something, if, whatever you say, if I were to say, if I were to say something like that, it, it would, the, the story is an easy one to tell. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, I knew when I wanted to write, uh, from fairly early on and mm-hmm. was, uh, originally very interested in, in writing essays and, and critical essays. And, and that's just what I had in mind when I said I wanted to write. Um, uh, mostly because I remember staring over my brother's uh, shoulder as he was writing an essay on Shakespeare's Julius Caesar for English class. And I just was, it was, it was really frustrating for him because I just wanted to stand over his shoulder watching him write the sentences so I could figure out his analysis of this play, <laughs> which of course, you know, even as a child, the rudiments of it, you, more or less, I more or less knew. So even though I hadn't read the play yet, and uh, and so I was fascinated early on by by the ability to say important things in sentences. <laughs> that was sufficient right. for me. Uh, so, uh, but fairly soon, I developed an interest in in fiction writing and wrote many stories and actually wrote several novels and um, and had decided to quit working and go to school to get a master of fine arts degree in writing and mm-hmm. so i was accepted into one and moved to the countryside in western massachusetts to begin pursuing that degree and within about a week of my arriving there i realized that everything that i was doing in a profession with a professional ambition to become a writer was giving me no joy and what I was doing for the joy of it was reading poetry and the history of poetry and and just reveling in verse craft. And it, that came as a bit of a, a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in retrospect, I looked back and I realized a, an episode that had happened a few years earlier was definitive. And that episode was taking a, a poetry course in college. And the uh, professor was describing that day how iambic pentameter worked. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody knows that Shakespeare wrote an iambic pentameter, but they don't actually know what it is, and I was no exception. Um, <laughs> and so he explained it, and I just thought, uh, this is kind of interesting. I wonder if I could write a line. And so I shut out his instruction for the rest of the class and spent the remainder of that class period just trying to write a, a single line, which I did more or less successfully compose a sonnet every day for five long years is what I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I took that line home and I showed it or back to the dorm as it were. And I showed my friends at dinner what this, this thing was cause called iambic pentameter. And they were really interested because of course they'd heard about it when reading Shakespeare as students and didn't have any idea what it meant. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I went back to the, my room where I would you know normally do my homework and I spent the rest of the night, writing 13 more lines, and I had a sonnet by the end of the night. It took nice. hours to do it. And I came home the next night and did another one, and another one, and another one. And uh, and by the end of the week, the, the school week, I should say, I had five sonnets I had written. 
and what those sonnets had that the other kinds of writing I had been practicing my hand at did not have was this intrinsic, internal, more uh, formal feature called meter and rhyme. And it was the, the act of cobbling syllables together to create iams, to create feet, and seeing the way in which I was sculpting language at the, the lowest possible level, at the very level of, of sound itself, um, that really fascinated me. And, and from that moment on, I came to think of poetry as the, as the superior art form, the, the paradigmatic art form, because it could do all the storytelling that fiction writing did. We've, we've, Homer had, and, and Milton and Shakespeare had proved that uh, centuries and centuries earlier. It's just it also had this deep interior kind of formation or forming property that uh, was in itself a cause of, of inspiration and joy. And so um, when I woke up, as it were, one day and realized that fiction writing had lost the joy that made it an amateur practice, and I think the arts have to be amateur in, in the sense of being done for the love of themselves, I just thought I better, I need to rethink my life, <laughs> what I'm doing here. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'll just write poetry, because there's two things I know about, about poetry. One is that the act of crafting it is a great cause of joy that never will grow old for me. And also, too, I'll never make a living at it, because nobody makes a living as a poet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so I'll, I'll always do it as an amateur, because it's hopeless to ho do anything else. <laughs> and so, uh, so I've been a hopeless amateur ever since. Hopeless amateur. So that's what you say at the end of the day. I am a, I'm not a poet. I am a hopeless amateur. Uh, I'm gonna, so. that, that needs to be a shirt, um, a T-shirt. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll sell that with Cicero and Society. A um, bunch of hopeless amateurs. Um, that's, that's, that's really great. And it also gets to, it, just thinking about the joy that it brings, it gets to, the, the answer that we gave our six-year-old daughter, by the way, was essentially something, and I don't remember how we worded it, but we said something to the effect of, it's like um, songs, like songs, but without the music. But their music's there, and like you know, there's this way of trying to to distill it down to um, something, trying to relate it more to songs, because that was how you know she, yeah. she could. You know, if I started to talk about meter, she's like, "What?" I mean, right. Um, or right, or, or these things. But that's how we described it, and I thought that was helpful to relate to. And we also talked about because um, what she has heard, uh, we we're Anglican, so we we read the you know, morning and evening prayer. So she knows, uh, or she's heard Psalms, mm -hmm. and so that's what th those are a lot like poetry. Those are poetry, you know. Um, and so I think that's a way to to describe it. Um, yeah. So two two cool. things on that real quick yeah. is um, I, first of all, that, I mean, I think it's an excellent response. In fact, I have an essay coming out in the next issue of Academic Questions from the National uh, uh, was it National Association of Scholars, um, uh, where I say that the two fundamental principles of the poetic art are its connection to music and to rhetoric, as classically understood, hmm. and. Um, and I, and I think that that sums up nicely. When poetry strays too far from its musical basis, it becomes, um, it, it really loses its, its essential nature. And that's, you know, what's happened in a lot of contemporary poetry. It, it ceases to be something you could recite aloud. But, mm -hmm. the, but even, even though poetry in Aristotle and Plato's day uh, was always recited 
as music or with music. Nonetheless, they understood that poetry was also a kind of rhetoric. And it's just the rhetoric mm. that's the furthest possible refinement. And that's where we, that's where meter comes in. Um, so I think that that's probably the place to start. I was actually, I gotta say one more thing about that. Yeah. The, the great foundational text of modern English poetry, and by modern I mean from the Renaissance forward, is the translation of the Psalms by Sir Philip Sidney and his sister, hmm. Mary Herbert Sidney. Um, that book where they translated the Psalms into 172 different verse forms wow. uh, is the book that launched A Thousand Ships. It's the, it's the great source text for the great, English poets of the 17th century, including George Herbert, John Donne, uh, and mm. others. I love George Herbert. Um, I love John Donne too, but I, this is, it's, it's such a, such an interesting thing. I was also thinking about how you're mentioning about how, how, you know, it's rhetoric and the, the, the music. It also makes me think of Cicero himself, who he tried poetry, but no one really liked it. And it, perhaps it's, I, I, I don't, this is just a hypothesis. Perhaps it's that Cicero, he underst- he understood the joy of writing poetry. I know that. Like he he definitely enjoyed writing it, but he also <clears throat> um, he probably had the rhetoric side of it, but not the musical side. Uh, maybe, perhaps that is why uh, it did not succeed, as it, at least to the extent that he wanted it. I, I I haven't read it closely enough. I don't think much of it doesn't even survive, as as I recall, um, if any. Um, anyways, I'd like to move on I, now to oh, yeah. go ahead. Go go no, go ahead. Oh, I was James. just gonna say I just I just completed a. Uh, poem this spring called the De- on the death of Cicero called the death of Cicero and Ooh. um and had spent uh months reading in his philosophical works not to mention the um uh, most of the details of the poem though come from uh Plutarch's life right. or rather the last few pages of it um uh but uh I I didn't actually wasn't aware that Cicero had written poems but it is interesting um how how central his, you know, his real understanding of himself was was first and foremost as a rhetorician, as, a, as right. an orator, and uh, and uh, and I can see why he prided himself on it, even because and, and he'd have to because he wasn't a great philosopher. <laughs> he's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, did did you publish the death of Cicero? That's coming out uh, in Literary Matters, I think, this fall. I'll definitely share. I would, I'd love to share that with uh, our uh, and, readers, and listeners. And, and, It'll also be in my next book. It's a, it was the, the last poem I had to write before finishing my next book of poems, which will be called um, St. Thomas and the Forbidden Birds. Ooh, that sounds awesome. Okay, cool. Poet, you guys have the best titles. Um, I want to move on now. I mean, this, mm-hmm. the, the enthusiasm that you create uh, in talking about poetry and these different things you're writing, and everything, um, it, is, it is contagious, and I think it, it, it speaks well to this very unique program down at University of St. Thomas, in Houston, um, and it, that, that seems very unique. Now, you've been in, other, in at least one other MFA program before, um, and I, I'm wondering, the, so tell us a, the brief, uh, you know, the elevator pitch of what this MFA program is, and what makes it different? Well, so the Master of Fine Arts Program in Creative Writing at the University of St. Thomas is the only such program in the world that has at its foundation two convictions first is the complete commitment to craft um and the sense of the well-made thing the work of art as 
uh, a thing that needs to be achieved in itself precisely because it is one of the great ways in which we come to know who we are as human beings and we come to know the nature of reality. And so craft, aesthetic form can reveal ontological form. Um, the nature of the work of fine art is a, is a way of knowing the real as a whole. In that context, we've designed a program that is uh, unprecedented in that it's entirely formed in the Catholic literary tradition. So our students are studying um, their craft, but they're also studying the history of the craft and with a special attention to the way in which um, poetry, fiction, and works of literature more generally can be sources of, of knowledge and revelation. And so we have uh, all of our students are really taking what's kind of a, a great books curriculum. They're studying um, the philosophy of art and beauty. They're studying the foundational texts of the Western tradition, including uh, Virgil, Augustine, and Dante. Uh, and they're also learning uh, or studying the, the great masters in, of, the, of the Catholic literary tradition from the last hundred years so they can see what recent writers have done and what can still be done or what, or, uh, but also can figure out what needs to be done next because every artistic age is responsive to local conditions that are not always enduring, even though we try to make literature that endures forever. So um, it's really, a, it's truly a one of a kind program. There's, there's one other program that has some similarities to it for sure. Um, but our curriculum is, is in itself distinct uh, and unique. And then we, we also have a, another unusual quality, and that's this. Most Master of Fine Arts programs, um, the quality of the instruction is not very good. And so when students would come to me and ask whether they should go get an MFA, I would usually say, well, if you can find one that'll pay for it, and you can just go live in a small town for a couple years and write your book and ignore everything else that's going on, that would be great. But otherwise, they're not really worth doing. That's mm -hmm. um, maybe a harsh judgment, but but you know, this is just in casual conversation with students. I might be more nuanced if if I was hurting somebody's feelings. But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd still probably hurt their feelings though. Right. Um, uh, but uh, but our program, we we can't offer that. We are an online program, so we cannot help you hole up in the woods for for two years. You that's you're on your own to do that. Um, we're an online program. And we conduct all our programs as traditional graduate seminars of the kind that you would do in the traditional graduate residential program, uh, but just by way of Zoom. <laughs> and so, uh, so you you do miss out in in being in a, in the same place with the same people in our program. But we've easily made up for that, I think, in terms of the quality of what we're offering the students in our classes. And then also, we've really emphasized the building up of literary community in the program so that when our students come, as they have the option to do to Houston for 10 days in the summer, not the ideal time to come to Houston, but it's the only time we can do it, um, uh, they, we're, you know, we're going into year three now, so I can, we have some, a track record here. By the mm -hmm. time they arrive in Houston in, in the summer, they're already close friends. Most of them have actually met up at different times over the course of the year. And then when they come together, uh, there's such an esprit de corps and a sense of being part of a great mission that transcends any one of us. And uh, it's just been wonderful to witness. So we've, we've managed to create a program that genuinely provides, I think, um, 
not just a good, but an absolutely superb curriculum. I'm very proud of what we do in the classroom. We've managed to build up a literary community where, um, where the students not only are cultivating their individual craft as writers, but are working in service of the arts and of the cultivation of a literary tradition that transcends any one writer. And, um, and they're building up great friendships and deepening their, the, the life of their souls in the process. This is really interesting. Um, and I, you know, I, I can see why, why students have been attracted to it. I'm wondering, I, if two, two things that come, come to mind then. What, what I mean, you kind of already answered this, but maybe more directly. Number one, what has been attracting students to it so far, based on the based on the, the, the interactions you've had and, and, and how you've what you've talked to them? And maybe the answer is this, this uniqueness. Um, and then the second question I have, and this this gets to some of the things that Ciceroian Society is very interested in. How do you see this MFA program and and, and, and what it's doing, if at all, as um, how do I say this? It's in, in, in service to the church, I guess is the best way to say mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, to what extent does this not... Because I think the question we always get is, well, what can I do with this? How can I make money with this? I hate that question as much as anybody. When I used to be a professor, I couldn't stand it. Because so much of what we do, it, we, 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 we learn and we, and we acquire these skills and experiences and develop ourselves to serve others. And so I think, you know, in, in what sense is that part of, of, of what you're doing, and is that part of what is attracting students to this program? Oh, I'd love to answer this question. So most of the students who are in our program are, uh, well, there's no most of our students. We have a, v- a great variety of students in the program. We have everyone from a, uh, a retired priest from Nebraska <laughs> to a, uh, a Benedictine monk who lives in the deserts outside Santa Fe on to people who have just graduated from college in the last year or two, many of whom are teaching um, in classical schools. We have stay-at-home moms and and homeschooling moms and and many other people, many many different walks of life. So there's, what they all have in common is that they're aware that the contemporary academy is a place that's hostile to all the things that are worth loving. It, it's hostile to everything. It's hostile yeah. to the divine. <laughs> it's hostile to the love of things of beauty and of goodness for their own sake. And it's hostile to the sense of uh, the artist's work as a work of craft that is that is in its is itself good in itself. So um, and so most of those people are sharp enough to realize that going to any other graduate program would have been uh, a waste of their time and likely uh, a cause of great frustration as they have to push against the general um, slowly declining gravity <laughs> of of the contemporary academy. And so they were willing to be, these people were all willing to just be writers and to try their hand at writing on their own without merely experiencing the discouragement of entering an academy far gone in decadence, as Russell Kirk might have put it. Uh, but when they saw, so when they saw our program and they saw it had the kind of mission that they as aspiring writers and that all aspiring writers really should have, I'm going to come back to that point in a second, um, they realized that this was the thing they had been looking for but had despaired of ever finding. 
And so they came to us and they're coming to us in droves, which has just been beautiful to witness. Uh, I had, you know, immense doubts and fears in starting this program because I didn't know if this was just something that I thought the world needed or if anybody in the world actually thought they needed it. But uh, happily, the answer has been uh, the latter. Um, in the service of the church, I want to I speak uh, of that in a couple ways. In one sense, we're in direct service of the church. Um, the church uh, is itself a fostering of civilization and culture. And works of culture, as, as Philip Reef once put, are, are, um, are temporal and social expressions of our perception of absolute reality as a whole, of eternal society, and so or eternal reality. And so works of art play a central role in how we orient ourselves to reality, how we orient ourselves to our life in time for the sake of what transcends time. And so... In saying that we are the only, the first and only MFA program in the Roman Catholic tradition, in some respects we mean that very directly to the, the Roman Catholic Church. The, the tradition that you're learning is the one that the church has, has begotten. Um, but I think everybody in, within the church would recognize that what we're hoping to produce are just things of beauty, things worth knowing. Um, not necessarily things of apologetic value, though that's a perfectly legitimate part of what we're doing, um, but things of permanent value is, a, is our aim. Um, and so in, in a very broad sense, I think we're at the, the service of the church because we're trying to build up a civilization that's alive to the spiritual potencies of, of human nature um, and that tr is trying to make works of art that genuinely grapple with what it means to be human and our destiny, uh, which for each and every one of us transcends the political realm, the temporal realm. It transcends everything except for the heart of God. That's a beautiful description. Um, and it, it's one that uh, is, is uh, people who came to the conference back in, in March in Belmont Abbey, um, we're talking about doing a fellowship program that I'll, I'll describe more in detail some other time, but it's this, this hope that the uh, people who are creative and who can go th who love these kind of programs, that they see themselves more and more in the, in the ways you described, as serving the church um, and as serving the, those around them. Now, uh, I, we just have a couple minutes here. I want to give you the last word um, and invite some folks to, um, uh, to, to learn more about this MFA. Um, when can they apply? How long does it usually take? Uh, it, is it a two-year program, for example, or is it a little bit longer? Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention one more thing, and then we'll be, we'll be good. So the, if you enter the program full-time, you can complete it in five semesters or two calendar years. Um, okay. It's a 10-course program. Uh, so two full-time enrollment is two courses, and then we have two optional summer residencies. Some students will just complete the program entirely online, but most of our students have been coming to Houston so far. Um, uh, but many, we try to be as flexible as possible because we know a couple things. First of all, nobody is coming to us because they want the credential. They're not looking for a degree. They're looking to become writers. So mm -hmm. we want people to uh, go through the program at their own pace and in a way that will help them become the best writers they can be. So a fair number of our students are enrolled part-time, which uh, you know, can take uh, up to four years to complete the program, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but most of those people are perfectly content with that because what they're getting in our program is this constant uh, accompaniment and, and counsel as they're developing their craft as writers. And some of our students, of course, shift back and forth between full-time and part-time enrollment. As far as applications go, it's pretty simple. We, we determined pretty early on that all we care about is whether somebody shows promise as a writer and that they have a vision of what they want to do as writers that, um, that is consonant with the great literary tradition going back to, to Homer. And so we just ask for uh, a statement of purpose and then a writing sample, usually uh, you know, maybe 10 pages of poems and uh, up to 20 pages of fiction. And, um, and that's really worked out for us because we've never accepted anybody into the program that we didn't think we could do something to help, meaningful mm-hmm. to help. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, and we've been able to guarantee that the members of the program are all there really for the right reason and, uh, and will be participating in a common purpose with everybody in the program, which has just been terrific. And then finally, then we also are just not wasting anybody's time with a bunch of filling out of forms and other needless details. Right. Um, well, this has been great. If you take a look at, um, it's sthom.edu. That's the website for St. Thomas uh, in Houston. And you could search for, uh, in, under the School of Arts and Sciences, Division of Liberal Studies, Graduate, Master of Arts, and uh, Fine Arts and Creative Writing. So take a look at this program. Uh, James Matthew Wilson leads it up, and he's doing a fantastic job. I'm so encouraged by what I hear here. Um, I want to just conclude with inviting anyone who's listening to this uh, to consider our conference as well. Because um, if, if you've enjoyed this conversation, you ta- like talking about poetry in this way, you like people like James. Um, or if you're someone who looks at this MFA program and says, that's, that's for me, we hope you'll also consider joining us for our 2024 conference in Plano, Texas, February 29th through March 2nd. You can learn more about that on our website at C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. Uh, a lot of people don't know how to spell Cicero, I've, I've discovered. Um, and so uh, we, we would love to have you there. I actually, uh, and I haven't figured out exactly how to do this yet, but we'd love to have um, your readings of poetry and fiction at the conference. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, please contact me. We'll, we'll talk about doing that. Um, well, thank you, James, for, for being here. Um, you've been listening to us, uh, to The Sower, a production of the Ciceroian Society, so be sure to rate and review this podcast, share it with your friends, and once again, remind you of that conference panel and paper proposals are due by September 1st, 2023, and more information can be found on our website. Thank you. Thank you.